Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted June 16, 2017, we talk with Kiev correspondent Ian Bateson about his article in the new WPJ Spring issue, A People Without a History Won't Fight for It, The Battle to Control Ukraine's Past. We'll also point out other top features in the spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising. But first, some top news of the past week. President Donald Trump personally is now under investigation by independent counsel Robert Mueller for possible obstruction of justice in connection with the FBI probe into Russian hacking of the 2016 election, including his firing of FBI Director James Comey. Attorney General Jeff Sessions refused to answer Senate panel questions about related conversations he had with Trump in case the president might later decide to invoke executive privilege. Separate reports found the Russian hacking more widespread than earlier known, penetrating pre-voting records of up to 39 U.S. states. Earlier, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals in San Francisco joined Virginia's Fourth Circuit to continue blocking President Trump's 90-day ban on entry from mainly Muslim countries, ostensibly to toughen vetting, though little procedural change has been noted. Attorneys General from Maryland and Washington, D.C. also sued Trump in federal court for retaining ties to his global business empire and benefiting from foreign payments to it. Overseas, despite Trump's recent tirade against Qatar for supporting violent extremism, the Pentagon concluded a $12 billion sale of F-15 fighter jets to that tiny Mideast country, which also hosts key U.S. military operations. In France, after first-round parliamentary voting, newly elected President Emmanuel Macron's freshly formed party seemed on its way to a majority in the National Assembly. And across Russia, the largest protest demonstrations ever under President Putin led to massive arrests, including opposition leader Alexei Navalny. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. We need to reinforce the Ukrainian uh, military um, as much as we can and provide them the best opportunity to to fight what is a a very lethal Russian proxy at this point. Before a U.S. Senate panel back in March, General Curtis Scaparotti, head of the U.S. European Command, stressed the need for more lethal aid to Ukrainian forces fighting Russian-backed separatists. The following month, one of the most successful units among those Ukraine forces, the Volunteer Azov Brigade, staged a march to celebrate its founding three years ago and its steady expansion into a national movement and a political party with a variety of potent symbols. Both a 10th century lead seal linked with the Kiev area's conversion to Christianity and more recent and reviled neo-Nazi and Nazi-like insignia worrisome to Kiev and to Congress. Some see the Azov Battalion as powerfully motivated, by traditions both sacred and profane, to oppose current Russian-inspired and assisted territorial claims. Others fear the Azov and similar units could ultimately become a major fascist threat to democracy in Ukraine, if not a Trojan horse for Moscow in the end. 
Worthy of note either way is their use of symbols to generate a new sense of national identity after so long in the shadows of czars and commissars. Kiev-based correspondent Ian Bateson has done just that. His article in the new spring issue of World Policy Journal is titled A People Without a History Won't Fight for It, The Battle to Control Ukraine's Past. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Ian Bateson, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. Happy to be here. Your story opens in October last year as members of the Azov Brigade approve its political manifesto to become uh, an actual political party. Describe that scene for us. Uh, So it happened in a building not far from where I live, and there is a lot of activity. It's a big holiday for different military groups in Ukraine, so they were trying to feed off of that a little bit. So they had large banners uh, outside of the theater using their new emblem. They had their big big bands with uh, Wolfsangle, the symbol that was also used uh, by the Nazis for some of their military divisions. And they have a very strong youth league, basically. So they were very strongly represented. Uh, you had, you know, Roman salutes for part of, uh, part of this introduction, and it was meant to be a launch event for their political party, because they've existed for a long time, first as a volunteer battalion, then as a military unit under the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and this was their first big foray into politics, uh, and they were clearly excited about it. What were the major elements of their manifesto? It's, it's a real hodgepodge. You know, it ranges from things like legalizing firearms for, you know, for anyone in Ukraine, which is not the current legal case. It involves reacquiring nuclear weapons for Ukraine. Uh, it was very anti-European Union, but wanting to create a new Black Sea Union, you know, including a lot of the countries that belong to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, and very, very Ukraine-centric. The really interesting thing is that a lot of what they support is not so different from the Eurosceptic parties in the European Union that are supported by Russia, but of course one of their core beliefs, core tenets, is being anti-Russian. What were uh, the, you you mentioned a little bit more of the worrisome Nazi and neo-Nazi indicators, and, and what do the Azov leaders say about them? I mean, so this has been going on for a while. If you went to their base near Mariupol, it's not uncommon to see uh, members of the battalion who had, you know, SS tattoos uh, or other neo-Nazi tattoos. Now, the commanders would always say, this is a volunteer battalion. We're not going to turn any away. Someone shows up and wants to fight. We're not going to say they can't fight for us because they have this tattoo. Now, what a lot of people respond from that. And when I spoke to people who are in Mariupol, they're saying, you know, they, yes, anyone can show up. Yes, different people can fight. But there is also a core uh, skeleton, if you will, of the battalion that draws from far-right groups like Patriot of Ukraine and others, and that they actually believe these issues. Um, Zolv has been more smart on the PR front. They've never acknowledged that. Uh, but the symbols seem to tell a different story because they have, you know, these runic symbols. Uh, one is in German is called the Wolfsangel, so not an explicitly Nazi symbol, but in neo-Nazi circles uh, is seen as being one because it was used by the Nazi military. And they also had, you know, different wheels associated uh, with fascism. So the the PR line is that. Uh, 
you know, the wolf's angle, they say it's the idea of the nation. You know, it has nothing to do with this other symbol. But when you have a, a lot of these symbols coming together that are connected to neo-Nazi groups across the world and are popular, it's just strange credibility. So when they launched this new party, it was interesting because they dropped all of that. These symbols that were controversial and had been a big PR problem for them were suddenly gone. But that made people ask, have they actually changed or is this just a PR front to try and make them more successful in elections? How successful has Azov been on the battlefield in its first three years? Well, they're credited with saving the port city of Mariupol. When uh, Russia started this new uh, offensive in eastern Ukraine, you know, before that it had been farther north in the Donetsk uh, region, and suddenly they were coming to Mariupol, uh, the important port in the region, and Azov was there, and so they're credited with uh, having defended the city. It's a little hard to say who did what. Also, Russia didn't seem, the Russian-supported forces didn't seem like they were actually pushing into the city yet. Uh, but one thing that's very clear is that, and especially in the first years of the war, Azov was much better organized and had much better discipline than a lot of the other volunteer battalions and certainly than the Ukrainian military. And that is what has put Ukrainian officials in a difficult position because here you have a conflict where Ukraine is outgunned uh, and you have a unit that you know, is organized and somehow able to raise their own funds, seems to be well-trained, certainly is disciplined, it's very hard to turn that sort of support uh, away. How successful in the political arena have they been, and what are the next big tests? You know, this is the big issue, because the experts in Ukraine for a long time have said, yes, there's a far right in Ukraine, uh, but the threat is overblown. And the reason they say this is because Russian propaganda has very has for a long time used the Ukrainian far right to as a scaremonger to scare people and you know after the revolution they were saying that Ukraine was uh, a neo-Nazi junta and then they would show pictures of Azov or other battalions to try and argue for that and so there is a strong you know there's been a tendency to kind of sideline them uh, which has been true I mean none of the groups have have done particularly well uh, what's been worried more people recently is you had three of the groups, including National Corpus, saying that they would go into the next parliamentary election as the United Front. And the concern there is that they would make it into parliament because they'd be able to get past the 5% threshold. Now, National Corpus, uh, the party of Azov, hasn't had an electoral challenge yet. So it's really hard to judge how successful they'll be. But certainly this alliance between three of the far-right parties has concerned people. Talk about the Russians' historical justification for its cross-border provocations and incursions that led the leaders of uh, Azov to seek a 10th century figurehead uh, for a more independent future. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting. These weren't ever legal arguments, but these were the arguments made on television, both for a Russian audience and for a Ukrainian audience, because Ukraine, uh, prior to the war, consumed a lot of Russian media. Uh, so one of the arguments was that, because I remember sitting in Moscow at a group of far-right nationalists, and they kept saying this, they kept saying, you know, Ukraine has no history of statehood, no history of statehood, no history of statehood. And what they meant by that is Ukraine has no right to exist, really, that Ukraine isn't a real country, that uh, it's just artificial, it's been imposed, uh, it's a wrong um, you know, and when they were talking about annexing Crimea, Russians argued that it was reunification, like the reunification between West and East Germany, righting a historical wrong. Uh, 
Um, so that it was a big challenge for Ukraine because in trying to argue for their right to exist, they also needed to argue that they had it passed. And there were Ukrainian things that went back, back to you know, hundreds of years, centuries. And so then tell us more about this historic figure they chose and why they settled on him. Right. So Shapislav the Great is not well known. <laughs> That's why they chose him, because he is historical. You know, he goes back to oh, way, way back. Um, but he was a blank slate because he wasn't used in the historiography. And when I spoke to the head of Azov, uh, Andriy Bilyetsky, you know, he liked him because he was a warrior, uh, he was a fighter, and that's very much their ethos. They liked him also because his image, you know, he had this single ponytail in his head, and he had the mustache, which makes him look a lot like a Cossack, well before Cossacks existed. Uh, so they liked that, but the big thing is that he hadn't been claimed by, by Russia. So they could use him and they could mark him as Ukrainian, which is fascinating when you think about, you know, claiming heroes and trying to nationalize things before uh, modern nation states existed. His son is well known because he converted all of Kievan Rus to Orthodox Christianity. But his son was claimed, uh, Vladimir the Great or Volodymyr the Great in Ukrainian, his son was very much claimed already in the Russian Empire and emphasizing that this figure was Russian. So they built a giant new monument to him uh, outside of the Kremlin, and there are arguments that because he shares the same name as Vladimir Putin, the same name as Vladimir Putin, that uh, what they were trying to do is really just build a giant monument to, to Vladimir. Now, from the other side, some people can even see that choice as you know being fascist, uh, in that this was pre-Christian Ukraine, and uh, Nazis and others always had a soft spot for pagan symbols and pre-Christian Europe. Um, but that's a little hard, hard to say. A 10th century hero was also a safer choice as a figurehead than the World War II Ukrainian nationalist leader, whose name actually replaced many of the Soviet-era uh, names on roads and squares and other public places after uh, 2015. Tell us about the problem with uh, Stepan Bandera, uh, or Bandera, I guess, especially as Moscow later exploited him after uh, the Maidan anti-Russia protests. Right. So, I mean, Stepan Bandera is, uh, for propaganda purposes, he's a boogeyman. Now, he was a Ukrainian nationalist, and he's very hard to, to pigeonhole because the history is messy. He was in prison, in Polish prison, when the Nazis invaded Poland. Then he was set free. Um, you know, then he went in and declared he had always had contact with the Nazis. Then he went in and declared an independent Ukrainian state when they moved into eastern Poland, and then he was put in a concentration camp for the rest of the war. Uh, so from the Soviet period, they simply argued that he was a Nazi collaborator, just as bad as the Nazis, even worse. And that's the, the line that has continued um, through Russian propaganda and portrayals into, until today. Now, in Western Ukraine, he's seen as a national hero. His groups as, you know, um, representing resistance and fighting back. Uh, the, the issue with that is that groups that were trained by him, that were linked to him, committed atrocities against uh, Polish civilians and also Jews. Uh, but it's hard to link to him directly because he was in a concentration camp at the time and later assassinated by the KGB in, in Munich in the 50s. Uh, but the really interesting question for me is Ukraine has a lot, knows a lot what it doesn't want. They have decommunization laws that are requiring streets to be renamed, mosaics to be taken down, 
but there isn't a clear answer of what you replace those things with. There is no code for one Lenin equals one what. So there has been this whole search for Ukrainian heroes. And to do that, you have to identify what your values are, what you want your state to stand for. Now, there have been a lot of people who have advocated for Stefan Bandera because they see him as uh, you know, giving the middle finger to Russia. Uh, a lot of protesters who weren't uh, sympathetic with the far right were labeled by Russian propaganda during the protests as Banderites, as far right people. And so using his name for some Ukrainians has become a way of uh, just trying to make the Russians really angry. But unfortunately, that hurts relations with Poland, it hurts relations with Israel, and it looks bad for the country. So I've always been interested in this, these alternative projects. What I found fascinating is Dissolve you know, has a lot of issues, is linked to the far right, but they seem to take a much better PR move in terms of the hero they were supporting. They chose someone who was a blank slate, someone who could be used, someone with a sense of history, um, but who wasn't linked to all these problematic issues. And so they put up on a pedestal where Lenin had stood in Mariupol, they put up a new statue of Svetoslav. So they had a positive answer. And I was really intrigued by this choice. Describe this 10th century seal, uh, how it's been used so far, and uh, the plans for its future. Yeah, so the seal is lead. It has this, um, uh, you know, two, it's like a trident, but only with two, two forks in it. And this is significant for Ukraine because the symbol of Ukraine is a trident with uh, three prongs in it. So it's seen as a precursor to that. Uh, adding a lot of tradition, uh, obviously connecting into the military tradition and that. When I interviewed people from uh, National Corps, you know, they said that we're not using this politically. We want to just educate people. Uh, but right now they're doing an exhibit in central Kiev in an 11th century gate into the city. And they have an exhibit about Sviatoslav the Great, you know, including weapons and all sorts of other sexy things. Uh, and on, outside they have big banners. It's very games, Game of Thronesy. So they have banners that have this uh, two-pronged uh, trident, uh, so the symbol of Sviatoslav the Great, and then they have the symbol of their n new political party also on banners in between them. So, you know, to me, it really seems like they're trying to use this historical figure to, to justify themselves, too, to give it continuity and to trace a path of Ukrainian history linked to militarism, linked to power and conquering way, way back uh, over a thousand years, um, which is interesting if, if problematic. Well, say more about the Azov founders' uh, uh, specific larger view of defining Ukraine's past to shape its future and, and provide you with a subtitle for this article. Well, I mean, it was, this was in the interview with Bilecki that that was the quote from him, that a people without a history won't fight. And with history, it was about, you know, also for propaganda purposes, to give people uh, a model, to have something to get people out there. Because uh, Bilecki's argument was that, you know, people believe they were part of Russia, part of the Soviet Union, and they, so they saw no reason to resist it. They didn't see anything positive uh, that was Ukrainian that they linked to to defend and stand up for. So for, for him, 
he was arguing that you know you need to give them some key figures and a sense of tradition and history that is the only thing that will get people to fight and stand up for it uh, and I do the positive element of trying to create an identity is very important because uh, as I mentioned this was a big argument both in the Soviet Union and then again after the protest for why Ukrainian nationalists were wrong um, and why uh, you know, Russia had a right to take action and be involved in the region. How do the leaders of Azov say the seal was actually acquired? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so uh, they say that there were, it's a convoluted story that strains credibility a little bit. Um, they say that the seal was found by a Russian archaeologist in the 80s when they were celebrating a big anniversary of Kiev and there were a lot of digs going on. And they claim that this Russian archaeologist, uh, archaeologists are always talking to construction workers, and that this archaeologist had spoken to construction workers, and they gave him this seal. And he took the seal back to Moscow. He kept it in his private collection until he died sometime in the 2000s, and then that his family was trying to, to sell it. And that Azov heard about this. They were trying to sell it to a museum in Novgorod the Great, as uh, so I've heard about it and that they, you know, spoke to Belevsky, they spoke to some donors and they raised the money to purchase it and then smuggle it in via various third countries back to Ukraine. Talk about your own checking on uh, the provenance of the seal and the questions that it's raised. Yeah, I mean, I called the museum in Novgorod the Great. I talked to their head of purchasing of objects and asked them if they had heard of this if it was this is an item they had ever been contacted about because there they held a lot of very old Kievan Rus objects um, you know because both Ukraine and Russia consider Kievan Rus to be their precursor Ukrainians consider it to be Ukraine and Russians consider it to be Russia and when I spoke to this woman she had never never heard of the seal didn't believe uh, they'd ever been contacted about it. And when I pushed uh, the people at National Corps for more details about it, they said that they just didn't know. So the whole thing was shrouded in mystery from that end. And then I spoke to a friend who is an art historian in Kiev, and he said, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but they have no proof. You know, with anything that you have in a museum, any of these very old objects, the history of ownership is key, you know, saying who, when it was found, who it was given to, who it was sold to. And without that, you can't prove that anything is, is actually authentic, that it is what they're trying to say it is. Still, authenticity is not the point you write. Say more about that. I mean, I think this is unfortunately the, becoming more and more the truth across the world, and I think that's something Trump definitely shows. For Azov, it, it's, the issue is not that the seal is authentic, it's that they can present it and take it to people and inspire people with it to get them behind this idea of a great, powerful Ukraine uh, in the hope of setting one, a new Ukraine up that is powerful in the future via their political projects. Obviously, that's, they have a very specific idea of what that is in that they, you know, they're against LGBT groups. They're not supporting diversity. They're not particularly democratic, um, but they want a strong military. They want strong political leadership. And they're about this return to greatness that we've seen, you know, brought up in the U.S. presidential election, brought up in elections in France 
France um, part of the German electoral campaign. So there is this global push for a return to past greatness, but people are usually pretty fuzzy on the details. Uh, for Ukraine, it's harder because Ukraine has only briefly existed as a country in the past century. So they, when they hearken back to a period of greatness, they've got to go back a thousand years. But this figure is good for that. Um, and because it, it's not a known figure, it wasn't taught in the Soviet Union or not even really taught so much in, in schools in Ukraine today, they can spin it. They can put their view of the past based on their political priorities on this figure. What about fears that the right-wing elements and thinking that helped drive Azov to fight against Russia and its surrogates now may lead it later to confront a democratic regime in Kiev? I mean, this is one of the hard questions, because early on, the threat was overblown in Russian propaganda. And as a result, there's a knee-jerk reaction, especially in Ukraine, to defend any of the far-right groups. Um, Azov is much better organized in their political project, too. They're better funded. They're active. Um, so they could be much more active politically. They have close ties to the Minister of the Interior. Uh, interestingly, you know, they're a battalion. They fight. They're not on the front lines because they were pulled back as part of the peace process. But uh, either way, they're not under the Ministry of Defense. They're under the Ministry of the Interior, where they have the support of Avakov, who's the minister there. Now, the concern is that as their influence grows and a lot of their people have been recruited into law enforcement, that they could become a major political player with a lot of influence. And they're not oriented towards the EU and they're not oriented towards liberal democracy. So they are a force that could direct, direct Ukraine into a different direction, a direction not so unlike Russia in how the country is set up and how power dynamics work. Well, continuing that thought, what about the worst suspicion that, like many far-right factions in Europe, it is or could become an actual tool of Moscow through secret financing, uh, devious, disconcerting, and fraudulent internet hacks, that it could turn over a control of area uh, that, that it controls in the end to the Russians? I don't think there's any credibility to that. I mean, Azov has been very consistent in their pro-Ukrainian line and resisting, uh, you know, what they would call Russian imperialism, Russian aggression. Uh, but they certainly give Russia a lot of propaganda bang for its buck. You know, you can just find countless stories on RT or Sputnik or other Russian propaganda media sites trying to support that. And they create a difficult situation for Ukraine as well, because you had you have a rider on a bill, a budget bill that came through the U.S. Congress on May 1st. So it's been passed by the Congress and uh, will go to the Senate now. And that's explicitly, uh, you know, forbidding Ukraine to direct any funding, financial support and training to resolve. So it continues to be a thorn uh, in the foot of Ukrainian authorities. Ian, thank you. Thank you. Ian Bateson is a Kiev-based correspondent who's put aside work on a book about Ukrainian identity for an international reporting project fellowship in Nicaragua. His article in the World Policy Journal Spring Issue is headlined, A People Without a History Won't Fight for It, The Battle to Control Ukraine's Past. Since we spoke, Russian social media sites popular in Ukraine were blocked by Kiev to counter Moscow propaganda and hacking of Ukrainian users many of whom objected, as did some key human rights advocates. Russia countered with a cyber attack on the website of President Petro Poroshenko, Kiev complained.
Also featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising, you'll find numerous views on how corruption of language and distortion of history contribute to dictatorship and how the process can best be fought. Also reports on Trump's savage brand of capitalism, on the retro-macho politics that doomed Dilma Rousseff in Brazil, and on the infrastructure of counterinsurgency. And listen next week when our podcast will consider today's political web wars and pro-Russia propaganda not made in Russia itself. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.